As recent Black Lives Matter marches sparked increased recognition and societal reckoning of systemic anti-black racism and discrimination around the world, the hashtag Black in the Ivory trended on social media as scholars of color shared their personal experiences of marginalization, othering, and systemic racism in higher education and academia. Building on this momentum, four scholars of Asian studies, Dr. Jolian Thomas, Dr. Levy McLaughlin, Dr. Michelle Wong, and PhD candidate Kimberly Sanders co-authored a petition to the Association of Asian Studies calling for increased attention to issues of anti-black racism and discrimination in the field, along with a number of concrete steps designed to recognize and support scholars of color in critical race studies. How have assumptions about race or ethnicity impacted the pathway of scholars of color in Asian studies? What experiences do black scholars face researching Japan in the United States? And what obstacles, if any, do black scholars confront when conducting research in Japan? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For this episode on Black in the Ivory and Lived Experiences of Black Scholars Studying Japan, I asked Dr. Garrett Washington, assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, to host a roundtable discussion with three early career scholars. Tika Gray, PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington, Yasmin Krings, a PhD student in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of California, Los Angeles, and AAS petition co-author Kimberly Sanders, a PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Because of technical difficulties, I recorded a separate interview with Kimberly Sanders, which can be found following the roundtable discussion. Hello, everyone. My name is Garrett Washington. I teach Japanese history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm a modern Japanese historian. I focus on histories of religious, physical, and social spaces and how they've influenced social change. I'm really excited to be here. The ever-inventive and uh, active Tristan Grunow reached out to me to be part of a roundtable to sort of talk about blackness and the study of Japan and our experiences in that context. And I think right now is a pretty momentous time as the Black Lives Matter movement has awakened the world on the heels of the recent deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and then many others before that, to the phenomenon of anti-Black racism in particular and the enduring legacies of white supremacy. So it's really, I think, an important time to reflect on this question of racism and anti-black racism in this field. So I'm here with rising stars in Japanese studies who are able, I think, to talk with me about our experiences being black and also working on Japan. And I'm going to give them a chance to, to introduce themselves in more depth. Would you mind going first, Tika, just to tell us a bit about yourself and what you're working on, what your research is about? Hi, I'm Tika Gray. I'm a PhD candidate at Indiana University in Anthropology. I am working with African Americans in the greater Tokyo area. I'm particularly interested in their experiences as transnational migrants, kind of focusing on how they navigate Japan compared to the United States as a racial and now foreign minority. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, um, that's, I think, fascinating. And I think we all have lots of questions about it. But I guess I'm curious, sort of this, this topic, how did you sort of get to this topic in particular? How did you come to be interested in African-Americans in Tokyo and, and their experiences? It's kind of been sort of a, a lifelong thing leading me here. But ultimately, back in undergrad, I got interested in Dr. John G. Russell's research. And then I went and did 
a study abroad in Japan where I um, was doing, you know, your standard undergrad project, but I was looking at blackness in Japan. And then for grad school, I came to Indiana specifically wanting to look at the relationships of black women with Japanese men. But it kind of evolved over time. And I I landed in more of a migration studies (laughs) focus, ultimately. Hi, my name is Yasmin. My research is on discourse and representations of mixed raceness in post-war Japan and its relationship to negotiations of national and social belonging and legacies of U.S. and Japan empires. My project is sort of looking at this category of konketsu or konketsuji, so mixed blood or mixed blood child, which is, you know, not a word that's really in use today, but many people would say that it refers to occupation babies, but in fact, referred to people of all mixed race or mixed ethnic, and here sort of race and ethnicity kind of blend together. So, you know, it included Korean Japanese, Russian Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. But my project is sort of interested in how we understand empires in history, and also looking specifically at non-white mixed race Japanese people and how they become relegated to the dregs of history. They become marked by war. So that's sort of my interest is sort of looking at them, specifically Black Japanese and Indonesian Japanese. And, and why those two particular kinds of mixed race in Japan? Sure. It ended up being those two. One, because when you look at what is called the occupation babies. So babies born between occupation troops and Japanese women, they're sort of overrepresented as Black. Mm -hmm. And that obviously created a lot of anxiety. It's sort of the reason why there was a huge sensationalized media boom in the 1950s about them. It's because of their Blackness, which in reality, Black Japanese made up a relatively small fraction compared to white Japanese occupation babies. <laughs> so I'm sort of looking at this overrepresentation, but at the same time that these sensationalized reports are coming out, in the same breath that they're talking about these occupation babies, they're often making reference to Japan Empire. So usually they're making reference to Indonesia. And this connection between Indonesia and also various circulations of Blackness, which has also existed previously in Japanese history, if we look at sort of Japanese imperial propaganda, images of the South Seas or the South Pacific have usually been made Black. And so this sort of connection between Indonesia and Blackness is interesting to me Mm. also because of that, but because in this particular moment, they're often referenced together. So I wanted to look at them together, and there's actually lots of media that has both Indonesian Japanese and Black Japanese appearing in this time. So I look at that. Okay. That sounds fascinating. And I'm sure that that lots of great things will come of that research. So those of you who are listening to this, I hope that you will look up these rising stars and and their work and keep an eye on their work as it becomes published. I wanted now to shift gears and talk about the important topic of lived experience of Blackness and studying Japan. You know, I get asked pretty much every year, usually by white students or people that I encounter, how did you get into this field? How did someone, you know, who looks like you end up studying Japan? And it's definitely sort of moments I can use to educate someone and to make a connection. And, you know, that's great. But it also, I think, is a reminder that people who see me, I'm not necessarily who they would assume. I'm not sort of supposed to be doing this, right, um, in normal circumstances. So um, I wanted to ask whether assumptions about your ethnicity impacted your pathways towards starting a PhD in Japanese studies. So with being an African-American woman who's interested in Japan, what I find is that people, one, like to point out how unusual it is 
And then also I get sometimes a look of surprise followed by, but the Japanese don't like black people or the Japanese are racist, mm. which I always take as one oftentimes almost like a warning of sorts where I'm not supposed to be the person who is engaging with Japan in that way. I'm not the person that people envision, which gets kind of doubled down when my research is dealing with a population of black people residing in Japan. They become particularly invisible to people. And when I tell people what my project is, the response is oftentimes, I never thought of black people. <laughs> They're kind of presumed not to exist in some ways. So it's, it's kind of interesting how as the researcher, I'm not who people will assume will be in doing research in Japan, but also the community I work with is invisible as well. Yeah, this question of I think invisibility I think is one that really pertains to people who who look African American or who look black and who are in Japan. But in Japan themselves, you know, they are not invisible. I think people do see them and they do sort of stand out. So there's sort of this interesting dichotomy of invisibility but also overrepresentation, which I think speaks to the work of Yasmin. Yeah, I would describe myself as someone who's sort of just fallen into Japan studies. In undergrad, I was a bio major, and I was certainly not thinking I would ever end up <laughs> in a PhD program about Japan studies. So, you know, speaking of visibility and looking a certain way, this is a podcast, so obviously you have no idea what my face looks like. But I am mixed race, and I don't necessarily look one way or another. I would say I look vaguely Asian. <laughs> and so the benefit, I guess, of being vaguely mixed race is that if I'm studying mixed raceness, no one ever tells me I should be studying something else. Okay. You're basically presumed to be an expert. And so, you know, I don't necessarily have the same experience of being told I'm not doing the right thing, you know, in the eyes of some, maybe I'm studying exactly what I should be studying, given my background and my relationship to the military bases. So it hasn't really impacted it in that way, but it has impacted in the sense that I guess it gives me expertise since I'm speaking on matters that are related to my own position. And that's interesting as well, right? This idea that you are legitimate because you have some sort of positionality that gives your voice the right to speak on that topic. Has that been a positive thing you would say, uh, Yasmin? I would say, you know, probably in the long run, it's a very positive thing. You know, who likes to be questioned, really? Um, so it could be positive. I think the negative is that it's still part of that understanding where people are expected to only study the thing that's related to them. So it's sort of the flip side of that. And so it's not really something I like to hear just because it's, it's basically the same thing, but in a more positive spin. You know, I have lots of friends who are in the PhD program who are not necessarily Japanese. And they're also often told like, why are you studying this as opposed to X, Y, Z, other ethnic studies or something like that? Yeah, okay, very interesting. This is the beginning of a conversation that will obviously sort of be much larger and hopefully will be ongoing. But this is a reality that as African-Americans or as Blacks studying Japan, we do encounter a lot. I think it has impacted our pathways towards studying Japan. Uh, I'm also curious about the experience of studying uh, Japan in the United States as a Black person. My master's degree is actually from a French university, and it's sort of a very solitary thing that I ended up doing. University of Paris 8. And so when I came to the U.S. to start doing a PhD at Purdue University, I began to discover the world of Japanese studies in the United States 
And I had not realized that it was indeed going to be extremely sort of a much a white world. And, you know, that I had to sort of get used to that. And I also had to get used to what that would mean for how I presented myself and, and those kinds of things. So I'd like to ask you all, in your experience, what's it been like being an African-American in the U.S. studying Japan in your various institutions that you've studied at? You know, I'm in Asia studies, so it's kind of this field in the U.S., or at least from the perspective of the U.S., you're studying a minority and other. And so there's this presumption that the field knows how to speak about race. And I think one of the jarring things was realizing that it doesn't really know how to talk about race at all. And that's sort of been a very strange experience. You know, obviously academia is very white, so there's lots of white people, but, you know, being around other minorities, they also sort of speak or engage in the same kind of racist, hegemonic ideas. And so it's kind of an unusual space to be. And I think this kind of speaks to, as Tika was saying earlier, the idea that like Blackness or Black people have nothing to do with Asia is a very common feeling in Asia studies, which is you know, in my opinion, it's ignorance. And then I also think there's this kind of lust for power and thus a willingness to uphold these racist hegemonic structures and modes of thought. So racism and anti-Blackness kind of really thrive in my experiences of Asian studies. I'm from California. And even then, you know, being at UCLA, I still hear people tell me that I care too much about race or I have to hear the N-word. And, you know, there's just all of this rampant anti-Blackness that is just really unusual and maybe for me especially sickening given that it's happening sort of in the very fields that claim to know something you know about race or racism in many ways i think being black in academia you know or being any other minority in academia is kind of like being rubbed over and over again until you're raw and basically spending your time trying to find the people who help you heal and build you up and trying to create those spaces that energize you and realize you don't need to be in those spaces that tell you you have to be civil or like non-antagonistic, while the very rhetoric is itself like anti-Black and racist and queerphobic and transphobic, et cetera, and what have you. Wow. Yeah. So on that same sort of same topic, have you had any experiences that made you sort of question or regret your choice to, to pursue this career path and this path of study? I think there are definitely times where, you know, you're at a conference that just feels so gross and you wonder why you decided to be here. But there are also moments in which, you know, as I was saying, you find those people that light the fire in your heart and mind, and those people make you want to continue to be there. I also think teaching has been really rewarding, mm -hmm. especially at UCLA, where there's such a wide array of students that you get. And it's for me personally, it's been very rewarding because I also get to speak to other Black Japanese students who are inspired or interested in in Japan studies, and I can be that person and be that space that gives them an experience of the field that is interesting and fun and not horrible. <laughs> and so the experiences of teaching and then also these other scholars who I find really thought-provoking and amazing are the reasons that I end up staying or that I feel that there's something that can be done or that we can create a space. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. Um, I think that teaching has been for me a source of inspiration and of sort of just hope as you see students from all kinds of backgrounds interested in Japan who, whether they want to or not, have to deal with me as the person teaching about modern Japan. So I really understand that comment quite well. 
Um, Tika, did you want to add anything to our discussion of you know, your experience in the U.S. studying about Japan? Yeah, so I might be a little unusual here as someone who comes purely from anthropology. So I didn't go through a Asian studies or a regional studies program. So when it comes to the dynamics within like East Asian studies departments, I'm a little out of the loop since I am very much linked to anthropology where there's a lot of kind of conversations with race. There's a lot of people who are looking at ethnicity. The field does have its work to do, which is something that right now is a conversation going on. But when it comes to being like African-American studying Japan in the U.S., my interactions are mostly in the academy outside of Asian studies. So I spent more of my time in African-American, African diaspora studies compared to the East Asian studies departments. And when it comes to talking about my research, I largely have done it outside of East Asian studies formats or conferences. So anthropology, history, black studies. So I, I do have a bit of an unusual relationship with Japan studies. And I tend to identify myself actually as an Afro-Asianist versus a Japan studies researcher. And can I ask you sort of how did you come to that, that choice, that angle? Was it a conscious decision not to be more engaged with the Asian studies community and more with just anthropology? I think very early on, my interest has always been Black and Asian interaction. From probably very early on in my undergraduate studies, I got interested in Dr. John G. Russell's work, Dr. Mitzi Carter, and these people who are looking at Blackness in Japan. And so I've kind of just always had more of a passion for that. And I've noticed mirroring a bit of what Yasmin was saying, there is an under-engagement with race. Or what I've found oftentimes talking to people is that when it comes to race in Japan, there's a bit of a getaway free pass. I think an over-application of labeling Japan as naive mm. and thus incapable of overt racism or harm and i find it a bit patronizing in some ways as well that kind of labeling of japan but i've kind of always framed myself as being part of afro asia my interest isn't strictly tied to japan or the japanese that's where i am now but i do see myself in the future looking at afro asian interaction maybe continuously in japan but also the United States or elsewhere. Okay, that's that's really interesting, and I and I like this sort of perspective. I think that I had not anticipated that, and that's going to be interesting. And I and I also wonder if perhaps Afro Asian studies contingent anthropology might have some advice for Japan studies in particular about how to think about these issues. I want to go to the last question that I had for you all, which is doing field work in Japan. And I wanted to ask you, when you have gone to Japan to do field work. What's it been like being an African-American in, in that activity, in that context? Could you share with us and those listening um, a bit about your experiences? Did you have anything on that topic to share, Yasmin? Um, I'm still sort of in process. My official research year is supposed to be in the fall, mm. which obviously is not happening because of the, the world ending and whatnot. <laughs> but my other experiences of just doing research in Japan, I I think what I noticed more is just 
being told that I'm, you know, I'm not Japanese or whatever. So that's usually my experience, but it's been relatively smooth. I don't feel, you know, as Kimmy was saying, it's, it's not as bad as people assume it to be. And I find it very smooth going. And, you know, I haven't really had the opportunity to do actual engagement with Japanese institutions or doing interviews or anything like that. So I mostly just been going to archives. So it's very hard to feel anything when you're just staring at a bunch of books. I agree, but I think as a historian, I go mostly to archives and to basements and closets to find things that there's a lot of interaction that has to happen to get there, right? And I think that the fact that you're able to get there in the first place, it does speak to access that perhaps people might assume would be hard to acquire. In your experience, how about sort of in daily life outside of sort of your research when you were in Japan? How has that been as a person of color? I think my day-to-day interactions are basically exactly like my day-to-day interactions in the U.S., which is that it's perfectly fine. It's just every now and then, you know, I'll speak Japanese to someone and they'll look at me a little weird, you know, like something, as I was saying, you know, I am mixed, so I look a particular way. And so usually I'll get that kind of questioning glance in my day-to-day life. And occasionally, obviously, people who are more bold will ask. In Japan, it's not really as common of a thing as it is in the U.S. for people to stop you on the street to ask you those things. Yeah. So it's mostly that or, you know, it's just feeling because I am Japanese. It's very much feeling like you are not Japanese being given a fork or something instead of chopsticks or speaking to someone in Japanese and then giving you a menu in English mm. and that sort of experience, which is not necessarily, you know, it's not uncommon if you're a researcher in Japan who does not visibly look Japanese, but it's particularly irritating <laughs> if you are Japanese and you've had to experience that. I can only imagine. Thank you for that. Tika, do you have things to share about your experience in research in Japan? Yeah, I have two things. One about everyday life and the other part is about the more research aspects of it. The first part, when it comes to everyday life in the field and being in Japan, partly because of the nature of my research, since I am looking at African Americans in Japan, I sort of embody it as much as I am researching it. So Mm. it's this (laughs) tandem lived experience. But typically I find Japan to be a really interesting experience with feeling safe in many ways and kind of that type of security. So that's really interesting for me. And then on the academic side, I have mostly interacted with Black Studies and American Studies scholars who are Japanese, largely through the Japan Black Studies Association. And with groups like that, I find them to be very welcoming, really interested in my work. There's a bit of a understanding of where I'm coming from when talking about race and African-Americans and their experiences. So I found it to be sort of inviting environment in that sense. I think largely that is due to just the nature of our work, interacting with other people who are also looking at African-Americans just in a different place and oftentimes a different time. Mm. I don't get to interact very often in Japan with Japanese studies people besides maybe other graduate students or researchers that I happen to meet outside of academic spaces. And my interactions with institutions have largely been fine. So I haven't really had many negative encounters. There's every now and then kind of a 
an awkward encounter, such as once when someone asked me about the Black church and I told them mm. I wasn't raised in the church and they pointed out to me how unusual that was. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not exclusively a thing that has happened to me in Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's been a, a question posed to me in America as well. So overall, I, I find my, my time in Japan doing field work and I've done over 18 months of field work kind of spread out. I find it to be a rather positive experience. Ethnographic fieldwork always has its up and downs because it is talking to people, talking about their lives and their trauma and their joys. And it is something where you, you take on a lot of that emotional energy. Mm. So being in the field can be exhausting in that sense. But I still find it to be something I'm addicted to. I'm always ready to, <laughs> to, to pack a bag and go. <laughs> Definitely. That was really, I think, insightful. I think that my first field research in Japan was in 2007 in Tokyo and in Kyoto, and I've gone back to Japan several times, you know, for a month at a time over the past 13 years. Goodness. And, you know, even in that time, I've seen a lot of things change in how I'm perceived and how people interact with me in Japan. There's that some sort of universal, I think, experience for uh, being Black and doing work on Japan, uh, in Japan. Um, but what I see and, and what you, I think you've all said is that in Japan, an African-American person can go and do research and can find sort of their niche and their people and feel comfortable in that niche and they can even thrive. And that, that for me has been my experience as well. And so I think that perhaps a takeaway that we might underline is that if you are studying Japan or if you're thinking of studying Japan and you're African-American, the assumption that going to Japan will mean that you'll have to face some sort of new racism or discrimination and that you will not be able to, to carry out your work, this is actually, I think, a fallacy in many cases, at least, and that you should not feel discouraged. I want to end by just asking you all briefly, um, if you've heard about this AF petition, how do you react to that? How do you feel about the fact that so many people have signed this petition to ask AS to recognize anti-Black racism and to uh, actively combat it? How does that make you feel, knowing that, that this is out there, that it's been signed so much? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I really appreciated all of these scholars coming together to write this and try to make this thing uh, something that happens, you know, funding Black scholars in Asia studies and related research. And I think it's something that is very necessary. And oftentimes, it's very easy for universities to just kind of throw the word diversity and equity and inclusion or whatever, and not really do very much about it. And it was nice to see it get as many signatures as it did, and also get the actual attention of the AAS board, who's now trying to put various things in process. And I'm hoping that the spirit of the petition continues into AAS's actions and that they will actually make change. I think there's always the potential that it can be defanged and made something no longer as powerful, but I have a lot of hope that they will do what the petition says and try to make and create these spaces for us. Yeah, definitely. I felt very encouraged and quite surprised to see this petition come out, although I, I think that I have enough of a connection with two of the other two authors to know that their points of view um, come from. So I think that we can probably end on that note. This is, I think, a very promising step that has been taken by a few scholars and that has been endorsed by uh, hundreds of others. Uh, and I think that, you know, overall, 
we as people who identify as African-American or, or, or as, as Black working on Japan are excited to see these changes happening and seeing this momentum take shape. And I really enjoyed talking with our guests, Sika Gray and Jasmine Krings. And thank you very much, Tristan, for bringing us together. After the conclusion of the roundtable, I conducted a separate interview with Kimberly Sanders as a result of technical difficulties. In this interview, I started by asking Kimberly to tell us more about her current research project. Yeah, fantastic. I am Kimberly Sanders. I am a PhD candidate going into my last year, scary, um, <laughs> at Harvard University in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations. I am also actually currently in Tokyo as a visiting research fellow at Waseda University in the School of Culture, Media, and Society. So this dissertation project that I'm ostensibly about to wrap up is actually maybe kind of a little bit different from a lot of the people you've been talking to lately, but it doesn't deal directly with Blackness necessarily. So I'm a media studies person, and I particularly focus on sound culture and popular media in Japan in mostly the 20th century. So I'm really interested in questions about intimacy, identity, and what it means to listen to other people's voices that are either amplified by broadcasting or recorded on various technology like gramophones, CDs, records, etc., etc., just for an example of one bit of what that work looks like for me, I have a chapter in which I talk about Benshi recordings in the 1920s to 1930s. And for those of you who aren't as familiar, Benshi are film explainers. So in the silent film era in Japan and in Japan's colonies, they would stand beside the film screen and explain the context of what was happening on screen and do voiceovers for the dialogue. So one of the weird things that I found in my research that I decided I wanted to write on is there's recordings of these benshi. There's recordings of them kind of extrapolated from the theater space. And my first thought when I encountered that was just like, why? Why is anyone going to be like listening to an explanation of a film without the film itself? So that question's kind of blossomed and developed into a question of what does it mean to feel intimacy with a celebrity um, outside of their direct embodied context? And what does it mean to have a voice in your ear that then you too maybe want to embody? Because a lot of the fans of these Benshi themselves may have wanted to become Benshi or have done this kind of amateur practice themselves. So again, like I said, that's not specifically kind of connected to Blackness in Japan or Black studies, but one of the things that I've kind of encountered on my journey of doing a dissertation project is how to come to my work with my whole self, not necessarily feeling like I have to cut out a part of myself. And one of the ways that I've actually wound up doing that and working on this period and kind of the early to going into mid 20th century is taking theoretical approaches that actually incorporate Blackness instead of saying, I only can talk about this from the perspective of what's been written about in media theory by white people in North America or Europe or only been written in Japan, I actually try and draw from theorizations that are coming from American studies and African-American studies that have this really rich tradition of talking about the spectralness of voices or what happens when voices are mediated or the role of African-American voices in their early music or recording industry and kind of use those to talk to each other, to try and think about how do we deal with this kind of spectralized voice that people at the same time felt was really embodied and really intimate to their experience of what you might be able to call fandom in that early stage. So that's just kind of one of my chapters. I think also a lot about radio. I think about idol singers, which is part of my earlier research as well. 
to come together and talk about this particular intersection of technology, voice, and listening in 20th century Japan and think about how we can think about things like subjectivity, identity, but also what it means to feel desire for something that's not necessarily characterized by simply your optical experience of the world. Thank you for that explanation of some of the things that you're interested in and in, in looking at Japanese media culture. And I was reminded, you know, one of the things that came up in the conversation between Dr. Garrett Washington and Yasmin Kriegs and Tika Gray was, you know, th- this kind of almost typecasting in a sense, you know, as black scholars, you're almost expected to do black studies. <laughs> right. And one of the questions that they were talking about that I thought was very instructive was this question of whether or not assumptions about your ethnicity impacted your pathway towards beginning a PhD in Japanese studies. And you know, I think you gave a, a good explanation of maybe some of the tension that you felt there. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Just to kind of like back up to how I wound up in Japanese studies, I was actually a little bit of a latecomer. I majored in comparative literature and undergraduate and didn't actually start taking Japanese language until my third year of college. And I think I would say actually like for my undergrad experience, I got really, really lucky by having a diverse language classroom. So I went to Williams College and our language teachers there did a really, really good job avoiding some of the microaggressions or maybe assumptions about ethnicity, there was no real feeling of like, maybe it's weird for you to be, you know, a Black person interested in Japan, going to Japan, learning more about Japanese literature. And then I wound up writing an undergraduate thesis about comic books in Japan. I would say, however, that experience kind of shifted a bit when I started graduate school, because I think I've had this conversation with a lot of other Black scholars of feeling this kind of invisibility or hyper invisibility at the same time when you're a black person in Japan studies or in Asian studies. So you have these moments where you go into like a conference or a talk and even no one says anything, you feel uh-huh. people are like, well, why is that person here? Like what, uh-huh. what business do they have here? Right. Or I've actually had the occasional experience of being treated like your staff or uh-huh. the help. You're not a colleague, uh-huh. but I think Even beyond that, though, my biggest struggle once I entered graduate school was feeling like I could bring my full self to the table when it came to being in seminars or approaching my research. And I don't think this is because of anything anyone said to me ever in particular, but it kind of felt taboo being a Black American in Japanese studies because there's this unspoken rule that the only races or ethnicities that exist in Japanese studies are white, often interpreted as American or East Asian often interpreted as Japanese, which of course is absolutely not the case. But I think that for a lot of the times when I was, you know, looking at my syllabi or even my reading list for generals, and that's the only scholars that you're seeing, you get this kind of unconscious litany of you don't belong in this field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a way in which, of course, my majoritized racial identities aren't unmarked. They kind of become erased into the universal. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it was really hard to see a place to articulate my identity at first until like probably three or four years into graduate school. And we've heard a number of really infuriating cases of being black while academic, you know, kind of people show up to conferences or, you know, getting their badges checked in ways that white scholars wouldn't. Imagine what you were talking about, you know, being black studying Japan in the U.S. presents a number of issues that, you know, people like me as a white scholar certainly wouldn't confront. And I'm curious, what about being, say, a black researcher in Japan studying Japan? Has this presented its own unique sets of difficulties or obstacles for you? Yeah. And well, actually, just to wind uh, back to your point about horrible experience of being Black <laughs> in the Academy, if people haven't checked out, I would recommend if you're on Twitter, go look at the hashtag, hashtag Black in the Ivory. It's really, right. really right. eye-opening to 
hear about other experiences of the academy that you may not be as familiar with if you don't exist in you know this kind of a body, right? Hmm. But kind of as far as being black in Japan, it's funny actually because one of the things I wound up saying in my own Black in the Ivory tweets is that all of the stories I told, none of them had happened in Japan, and I think that there's a few reasons of that. One that I'd want to say right off the bat is being in Japan, I get a lot of benefit of the doubt because I have quote unquote the right affiliations or mm-hmm. I have kind of these elite privileged fellowships, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really not right. It's messed up, right? Everyone should be given the benefit of the doubt that I think that I've been able to really benefit from. But that being said, I think one of the other things that's been really different at the very least, I'll say different because I don't want to use kind of a value-laden word, but is that for me being in sound studies or working on things like popular music, kind of the history of recording technology means that I'm actually encountering a lot of people that are outside of quote unquote Japanese studies, which of course means a very different thing in Japan versus outside of Japan, right? So I'm actually interfacing a lot with people working on popular music in North America and South America and Africa and Asia. So I often find that it's a bit easier to talk with them in some ways because they're already a bit predisposed to recognize my humanity, which maybe feels like kind of a dramatic way to put it. But there's a way in which they look at me and I think you're already a person that's worthy of consideration rather than someone that has to be figured out, which has often been my experience in North America in a certain way. And I've gotten actually really a lot of helpful mentorship from people working in American studies and particularly African-American studies here that I'm really, really grateful for. And I'm actually thinking right now of someone who works in sound studies who sent me an email to check in on me and signed off with Black Lives Matter. And that meant so, so much, especially kind of as someone who's had such fraught experiences in North American academia. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) In a recent conversation I was having with Dr. Marvin Sterling about the popularity of reggae, and also with Dr. Mitzi Wehata Carter about popularity of Black culture in Japan, this, you know, one of the things that kept coming up was the popularity of hip-hop music in particular, in the way that Japanese musical artists like Amado Namie, for example, have really embraced hip-hop, but also kind of representations of Blackness. And you mentioned that your work has been on sound in particular and, and Japanese media. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on popularity of Black culture in Japan, and especially now that you're in Tokyo, What kind of observations have you had along these lines? Yeah, I think that kind of for my own personal experience, or at least kind of to think about my own work, I'm at least tangentially interested in these kind of Afro-Asian connections or entanglements, or I think in some ways, mutual desire for one another. Because when you talk about this, I actually kind of think about the flip side of that, perhaps, and like the problematic, in some ways, incorporation of East Asian imagery or aesthetics into something like the work of the Wu-Tang Clan Mm -hmm. or even Nicki Minaj in more recent years, right? right? So I think it makes me think of kind of like my experience of having a foot in both worlds and how that kind of shapes my identity and also shapes how I think the future of Japan studies and future of Black students and Black scholars in Japan studies. 
because I think that there are actually a lot of students, Black students, Latina students, who wind up in Japanese studies because they do have this kind of admiration or akogare, to use a Japanese word real quick, for Japanese culture through either anime, manga, games, etc. So what is it when they, or even in my experience, kind of have encountered these images of Blackness in Japanese music or in Japanese media that can sometimes be fraught, but also sometimes I think have a productive friction for thinking about what is it to be a racialized other in a context outside of U.S. brand, white supremacy. Speaking of the future of the profession and and certainly of the presence of Black scholars in Asian studies, you recently co-authored a petition uh, to the AAS along with Dr. Jillian Thomas, Dr. Levy McLaughlin, and Dr. Michelle Wong. Uh, And so can you tell us a little bit more about this petition? What were some of the origins? Uh, But also, you know, what has the response been like to this petition? Yeah. So first off, I want to say that so much credit goes to Michelle, Levy, and Julian for really getting this petition off the ground and running. I was a little bit of a late addition to the team to give a graduate student perspective on things, but I really, really appreciate the work that they've done in pushing AAS and have really been kind of excited and appreciative of the response AAS has given us. So really, of course, it came out of this moment in which many places around the world, but also many places within academia, either have that be universities or other institutions are reckoning with these legacies and continued practices of anti-Black racism and structural violence. So I think that in order to really emphasize the urgency of this, we came to the petition from a place of wanting to think about two streams of things, one being actionable items for the 2021 conference, which will hopefully actually be happening which was pushing for getting better training for security staff to avoid kind of the experiences you talked about a little bit earlier of like having people's badges being excessively checked, having them be excessively policed in their own professional space, and also advocating for things like a plenary session that talks about critical race theory, talks about racial oppression as it's manifesting in the U.S., but also around the world to talk about the ways in which Asian studies is not something that is immune from these issues. Asian studies is not something that can be disconnected from the issues of the struggle for racial justice across the world. We're in it together, right? And the second track that we really wanted to emphasize in this was building the pipeline for Black scholars, but also other marginalized scholars of Asian studies, because I think one of the things that came out in our conversations is that there's ways in which people wind up falling through the cracks that you might have a promising undergraduate student who's like, I'm really excited. I want to write my undergraduate thesis about, I don't know, castles in Japan or something like that. But you might have a moment where they go into a language classroom, they experience microaggressions and they're like, oh, this isn't for me. Or you might have a moment where they enter graduate school, they look around, there's no professors that look like me. Is this something that's really a viable future for me? So that was one of the reasons why we are pushing for things like using designated speakers bureau to bring in scholars to historically black colleges and universities or other campuses with quote unquote majority minority populations. It's a problematic term, but I'll use it for the time being. Or things like having a mentorship session at AIS such that young Black scholars can see that, no, there are people who have made it. There are people who are willing to talk to me about the very kind of specific experiences of being Black in Asian studies, being Black while doing field work in Asia, and other sorts of things that make the environment more 
fertile for that kind of growth in the field, which I think is really important for AIS as we see that graduate students are diversifying. If we look at our undergraduate classes, at least in Japan studies, and I suspect in things like Korean studies as well, due to the influence of K-pop, we're seeing that our classrooms are diversifying. But if these students don't feel that there's a place for them in this field, then you're going to wind up losing them, unfortunately. And the petition was incredibly powerful in in raising the issues and, and I think opening the eyes of a lot of people to some of these issues that, again, you know, as white scholars, you know, we might not have been aware of. Uh, And it's been encouraging to see the quick reaction of AES. And they're even doing this virtual panel coming up in a couple of weeks, addressing some of these issues. But the petition itself got, I think it ended up being as many as 1400 signers. And uh, yeah, 1410. (laughs) And so for those who didn't get a chance to read it, I, I think it was mainly circulating around social media. But for those who didn't get a chance to read it or sign it, Is there a place they could go find it now and and read it if they wanted to? Yes. So if it's okay, we can actually have the link um, in the details for this episode. Absolutely. But it's hosted right now on Julian Thomas's website. So you can read the text of it. You can read the details of it. And I should emphasize that, you know, not everyone who signed this petition was a member of AAS or necessarily in Asian studies. Um, One of the most really inspiring feedback that I've gotten from people is from people outside of at least East Asian studies, but people from Middle Eastern studies, people from other kind of quote unquote regional studies disciplines saying that this was really great to see. It helped me think about how I would potentially want to frame a similar kind of statement to my own academic society. It's helped me have a template for work I can do on the ground at my own institution, at my own university. And that's been really, really exciting to feel that there is a push and a movement happening here. And we've already had our first conversation with AAS to turn the stated commitments, which were wonderful, into concrete actions in the next months and years. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.